Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, hello and welcome to you all. I'm Bill Glasgow from the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. I'm here today with our great co-host, Susan Wachter, co-director of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Hi, Susan. Hello. Thank you, Bill, for that kind comment. Unnecessary, but kind. Thank you. And we'll be back to you in just a moment. And for this special briefing, we're looking at a subject that's near and dear to Susan's heart, speaking of urban research. It's the big challenges facing America's big cities now that the midterm elections are over and we start to think about 2023 and beyond. This is a big deal because 80% of Americans now live in urban areas, according to the U.S. Census. So how will cities navigate inflation, rising interest rates, an economic slowdown or maybe recession? And that's on top of other issues like concerns about public safety, the physical impact of working from home, dealing with the loss of federal pandemic budget aid, and of course, closing the affordable housing gap. And that doesn't even get into infrastructure, water, sewage, resiliency. There are a million issues facing mayors and city councils right now. And our panelists are ready to dig into all these. But first, just a few couple of words. We're coming to you live on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites and on the special briefing podcast. And we've taken audience questions in advance, and we'll get to as many as we can, mostly in the second half. And of course, our thanks to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and the Century Foundation for your generous support. So now let's get down to business and turn right away to our panelists. From the National League of Cities, please welcome Farhad Omer. Joining us from Atlanta is the city's legendary former mayor and Volcker Alliance board member, Shirley Clark Franklin. From the Newmark School of Journalism and the City News website in New York, we have Greg David. And from the Wall Street Journal in Chicago, let's welcome National Muni Finance reporter, Heather Gillers. So now let's get down to work. Farhad Omer recently unveiled the National League of Cities' latest report on municipal fiscal conditions. There's a lot of good news in it. Budgets are pretty flush right now, but also there's some real worries about inflation and revenues and other things. So Farhad, the floor is yours. Thanks, Bill. Yes, as you mentioned, lots of good news and bad news, not so much good news. So if I were to condense basically our findings from this year's city fiscal condition report, I would describe the fiscal status of our cities nationwide in just one phrase, and that phrase would be cautious optimism. Following sharp declines in revenues from the COVID-19 pandemic, municipal revenue sources rebounded for, for majority of cities, of course, rebounded in 2021 and 2022. Municipal governments are more confident in their ability to finance public services and resources than in 2021 and 2020. However, abnormally high inflation rates has nearly canceled out the tax revenues gained in 2021. I'm talking about the fiscal year 2022 right now. And these high inflation rates are raising concerns about the possibility of a looming recession 
toward the latter half of 2023 and early 2024. In fact, when we ask governments, our municipal governments in the sample, about the major factors most enabling them to balance their fiscal year 2022 budgets, value of city taxes and amount of federal aid to cities and health of local economies were the most enabling factors while employee wages and salaries and inflation and prices and costs and infrastructure needs and public safety needs were most hindering factors basically in for, for their ability to balance their fiscal 22 budget. Overall, when you look at the whole sample altogether, both revenues and expenditures are experiencing rather sharp decline in fiscal year 2022. By the way, we, for fiscal year 2022, because we don't have access to comprehensive annual financial reports because majority of their cities have not closed their books yet, we are just referencing budget numbers rather than actually audited numbers. But the budget numbers show that both expenditures and revenues have declined by more than 2% negative basically for 2022 and that's actually a good thing because it shows that our governments are embracing for impact and they are being super cautious and fiscally conservative with regard to their expenditure levels based on the revenues they are calculating moving forward for fiscal year 2022 and 2023 basically and talking with these governments majority of them also mentioned that that will stay the same approach for them for fiscal year 2024 as well. Basically, governments are in the mood of not expanding their programs and basically focusing their limited resources at this point on their vital services such as public health and public safety. However, we can't just talk about revenue sources in just one umbrella term. There are different types of resources that get affected by the big picture in the economy, basically differently, such as, for example, property taxes, sales taxes, and income taxes. These different types of taxes have different levels of elasticity toward the economy, meaning, for example, property taxes are not really elastic. It takes property taxes a couple years to reflect the ups and downs of the economy. On the other hand, sales taxes and income taxes for minority of cities that collect income taxes, of course, they are really elastic. And as we saw right after the shutdown of the economy in fiscal year 2020, many governments struggled with the sharp decline in their income and sales taxes. So that being said, because these different types of taxes react to the big picture in the economy differently, we saw that property taxes are declining, but at a very slow rate when you take into account the inflation and basically calculate the constant value of dollars. However, the current dollars shows increase, meaning that because of the boom in the economy, governments saw increase in the dollar amount value of property taxes they collected in 2021. And they expect to see a little bit of increase in 2022 as well. However, when you take inflation into account, that our trend shows a slow decline. That decline will slow down and bounce back up, but it will take a couple of years. As for sales and income taxes, 
We saw sharp decline in 2020, of course, but 2021 numbers show that governments bounced back and then some. For sales taxes, actually, governments saw on average north of 11% increase year over year in their sales taxes, which is a very huge deal for governments. Again, I have to mention for those governments that actually collect sales taxes, the same trend was observed for income taxes as well. However, again, because we are dealing with different types of taxes, I have to mention that not all municipal governments are made equally, meaning some governments are based on their tax authority are allowed to only rely on property taxes for their general purposes, while other governments such as Cincinnati, Ohio, for example, they can collect all three types of taxes. So I will end my discussion of city fiscal condition with this, that we observe that governments that rely heavily on only property taxes for their general purpose expenditures saw less turbulence in their budgeting after the shutdown of the economy because property taxes were inelastic, relatively speaking. On the other hand, governments that rely on all three types of taxes or at least sales and property taxes saw huge ups and downs in their budgeting numbers from 2020 to 2021 to 2022. Back to you, Bill. Well, thanks very much, Farhad. Thank you, Bill, and thank you, Farhad. That was a terrific overview. So, Farhad, how unusual is it to see a decline? I take the decline, this 2% decline in revenue and expenditures is inflation adjusted it's in real terms. How unusual is that when you're not in a recession? I would say in a normal year without recession, the most we observed over the past 12 years after the Great Recession was 1.5%. And it's not just half a percent more decline, for example. That half a percent tells me larger cities, for example, city of Chicago might have had a large decline to take the whole sample. Our sample actually is more than 400 governments throughout the nation. So that half a percent is so rare that I can tell you that the past 10 years, we have not observed that level of decline in both revenues and expenditures. And if I may, a quick follow-up, almost an impossible question, but you referred to, and this is big city, big challenges. The big cities are in your database. They're being hit more, it sounds like. Yes, yes. That's why the whole average is going down more than previous years, because our large governments with large budget numbers are experiencing yeah. And what's that. astounding about it is, it feels like it, you have said that this is intentional. It's not just that property taxes are declining and somehow automatically expenditures are declining, but expenditures are being contained. All right, thank you so much. We turn to our next speaker, who is Mayor Shirley Clark Franklin, who among her other many, many honors and accolades is an Urban Leadership Award winner from the Penn Institute for Urban Research. So we welcome you back. Thank you so much for being with us in the Voker Alliance, Shirley, and give us a big picture from your perspective and also the view from Atlanta. It's good to join you. And Farhad, I was really intrigued by what you described. Uh, I just say quickly that when I came on as mayor in 2002, we had experienced a recession, but nothing like the Great Recession that came toward the end of my term. So I feel like I've lived in this space before. 
I would say that the experiences, at least in the Southeast, among the cities and metropolitan areas that are growing and are benefiting from in-migration, we are seeing a growth in population and therefore a growth in demand for not just basic services, but for investments by cities in quality of life, whether it is parks or other experiences, recreational experiences, and a greater demand in the area of, obviously, affordability. Because as the new immigrants come into the metropolitan areas, often they're coming from areas where housing prices are actually higher than they are in in the Southeast, so that they are expecting uh, higher prices and are willing to pay. In checking with the city of Atlanta, the city of Atlanta is about 500,000 people in a region of 6 million. So often when people talk about Atlanta, they're talking mostly about the region. And the region is continuing to grow as well. I have not been able to uncover any evidence that local governments of size in the metropolitan area are experiencing huge downturn in revenue that concerns them. They recognize, however, cautiously optimistic was a good way to look at this. When talking with them over the last few weeks, they learned that they realized that they could be facing a recession, but none has reached the point where they are expressing serious concern about their ability to pay for basic services. In fact, they are competing among each other for employees by raising salaries, increasing benefits, and increasing other amenities that might attract new employees. And we see that especially in the areas of public safety and police departments, where the competition between Louisville and a suburb of Atlanta to Atlanta and Macon, there's a great deal of competition around public safety. That tells me that they are willing to direct their funding into those basic services that the public is most concerned about. Now, just to pose that with this increased demand has on the infrastructure, whether it is the physical infrastructure or, in our case, the medical community infrastructure. So when I moved to Atlanta um, 50 years ago, the metropolitan area was 1 million people and the state was 4 million. Today, the metropolitan area is close to 6 million And the infrastructure that is needed to support a healthy community and healthy economy has really not kept pace. So though they are not complaining about resources, the need for investment far exceeds their ability to fund and to incentivize. Thank you very much. And thank you, Mayor Franklin. Thank you, Shirley. We'll be back to you, especially about the infrastructure questions and the, the role that the various federal infrastructure bills might play in this. But first, I want to remind everybody that this is special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. You can find this and all of our past episodes on your favorite podcast platform and on the Volcker and Penn IUR websites as well. And now let me turn the mic back to Susan to kick off the next segment. And thank you so much, Mayor. And it's our pleasure to have with us as well, Greg David, who is the director of the Business and Economics Reporting Program at the School of Journalism. 
of the City University of New York. Greg, thank you so much. You have knowledge about cities across the country, but particularly about New York. So what is the view from New York? So in New York, we just revised our spending for the current fiscal year up by another $3 billion. So in New York, the budget's going to be $104 billion for the fiscal year, which ends June 30th. About $1 billion of that has come in taking care of the migrants that the governors in Texas and Florida are busing our way these days. The budget is still balanced, though, and projected budget deficit for the next year is a pretty manageable $3 billion. We routinely close budget gaps of that size, and revenues continue to come in above expectations. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the two years after that, the last two years of the Adams administration's first and I wonder if only term, now projects budget deficits of $10 billion. And that $10 billion figure is actually low because the budget includes raises for municipal workers of only 1.5% a year. And there's no way the unions are settling for a 1.5% annual increase in this environment. And fiscal hawks say that the administration has not fully accounted for inflation or the effects of an economic downturn in their future forecast. By the way, the same applies to New York State, where revenues continue to exceed expectations, but the governor who just got reelected has refused to make any changes in her long-term forecasts for the economy or the budget. There are two pieces of good news, I might say sort of. The city's reserves are at $8.3 billion. Now, that's the highest in the history of New York in dollar terms, but not in percentage terms. And the city has fully accounted for the increased pension contributions that are required by the market correction. So we, unless the market goes down much further than it has, we don't have any big pension overhang that I think a lot of other cities and states haven't yet taken the steps to recognize. So the bottom line is the city is fine for this year and probably next year, but then the budget could be under enormous stress. And the issue is what will happen on Wall Street? How severe will the downturn be? And whether there's a recession or not, there's a downturn on Wall Street. Profits in the first half were down by 50%. We're beginning to hear talk of layoffs, et cetera. But it's probably not in the way you think. So a Wall Street downturn will affect the city some. Wall Street accounts for 9% of all city tax revenues, but a lot of that is in the property tax, which won't be affected. But Wall Street accounts for 22% of all state tax revenues. And that's, of course, because New York State is heavily dependent on a very progressive income tax. So if there is a huge Wall Street downturn, the impact will hit the state budget first. And when the squeeze is severe, that will impact all the money the state spends to the city. So the Wall Street impact doesn't come directly to the city, but it winds up being funneled through the state. Mm. So we've got a couple of years of breathing space, and then the problems could be very severe and how severe they will be depends on Wall Street. Now, the question I have for you, Susan, is do you want me to go into whether we're facing the 1970s or do you want to come back to that later? Actually, what I would like to do is perhaps, if Bill, it's okay, to yes, are we replicating the 1970s, but with a little twist, because I don't know if others heard this, but I sure heard it. When you just started out, you said that the mayor 
would be a one-term mayor. Why? Well, I think there's huge doubts building in the city about whether he is up to the job. You must have this connected to your budget discussion. Is that not true? Yes, but it's more so than that. So this is the way somebody very knowledgeable put it to me recently. When the mayor was first elected, the fiscal experts, the business community were thrilled because he said the right things. And that came after eight years of de Blasio never saying the right things about the economy or the size of government. But as we approach the end of the first year, people continue to ask, well, what has he done? Yeah, I'm sorry, but if I may go back to the specifics of what you were focusing on, the other astonishing thing you said was wage, assuming a 1.5% is budgeted. I mean, that's that's mind-boggling. There's no way that it's with inflation of 8% plus. So is that part of your concern about the Yes, that, issue? that's clearly a big budget concern. I would say this is nothing new in New York. Mayors do not telegraph the size of the raises they're willing to do. Now, in the last decade or so, it was easy to put 1% in the budget, knowing you were only going to go to 2%. Now we're in a situation where you they've increased the reserve a lot, but 1.5% is clearly inadequate. I've talked to a lot of people about the union situation. People think that there's going to have to be some creativity this time. All the contracts with our unions either have expired or the last few will expire in the next month or two. We could get short-term contracts instead of four and five-year contracts. We could get contracts with reopeners. We could get one-time upfront payments because after all, we don't know if inflation is going to continue at this rate. And they do have one little helpful note. Inflation in New York is lower than the rest of the country. Our year-over-year rate was for the last month was 6%, not 7.4%. We've routinely been running two percentage points below the national rate. That gives them a little ground. I mean, nobody's going to get an 8% raise in the public or private sector, except if you're on social security the way I am. But they're not going to settle for 1.5%. So big picture, I hear your cautious optimism holds for the next year or two, but very much depending on the economy for the years out. So we'll get back with more questions, but it's now my great pleasure first to thank you, Greg. It was terrific. And to turn to Heather Villiers from Chicago. And Heather is the Wall Street Journal reporter on municipalities. So we'll look forward to having your perhaps towards after Chicago, your broader view of how this is going to play out, these the current fears of recession and actuality of inflation for Chicago. Sure. So for Chicago specifically, I mean, the big news out of Chicago right now is that it is no longer junk, according to Moody's. So Moody's Investor Service just upgraded Chicago back to investment grade where it last was in 2015. The ratings firm downgraded Chicago because of its massive pension debt right now that stands at about $30 billion by the city's numbers. We got to that massive liability and for many reasons, but a big reason is that a longtime mayor, Richard M. Daly, underfunded the pension plans, just set aside far less money than really needed to be in those pension funds to meet the future obligations. We've now had two mayors since then, Mayor Emanuel and Mayor Lightfoot, who have brought more discipline to that annual pension funding process. And so in the 2023 budget, that pension contribution is going to come back up to $2.7 billion, which is a pretty significant amount of money that would otherwise be going to operating city services, et cetera. 
And that budget is being balanced in part with some one-time revenues, including the city stimulus funds. So that is how that is all, all coming together. But it does make for overall more financially healthy picture. And, and that's how the city got its rating back from Moody's. You know, for the national picture, I think some of the themes that we're seeing in Chicago are relevant on a national level, you know, just in terms of looking at sort of post-COVID financial health of cities, trying to figure out what's going to happen with working from home, you know, as you mentioned, like stimulus aid running down, the fight against inflation by the Federal Reserve that has caused this reversal from the stimulus economy that we had last year. I guess my perspective on public finance is that it it moves really slow. So I guess one caveat would be that I, I think we don't know the, all the answers to how cities will be impacted by all those factors. So like, if you think back to the 2008 crisis, the low point, you know, that 2008 when, when that hit Wall Street, but the low point in revenues for cities and states was really 2010, 11, 12. That's per Urban Institute data to give some credit. Also a shout out to the Civic Federation for some budget analysis on the city of Chicago just citing my sources there. So the point being that I think we'll be watching all this play out for a long time. Property taxes, for one example, like if you think about how they have to reassess the property and then mail out the bills and collect the taxes, and then eventually that becomes revenue in the city budget. You know, like when you think about something like the effective work from home on city budgets, like there will be a long time in the future, long time, long time ripple effect. But, you know, I think we are seeing some really acute fallout for one thing on public transportation. And then just generally, I think we could say that there are big regional differences that the trends that predated the pandemic, where you see older northern and Rust Belt cities struggling with long term liabilities, whereas growing cities in the south and west, as Mayor Franklin mentioned, Atlanta going from 1 million to 6 million and Louisville competing for employees, you know, I think some of that demographic shift was actually compounded by pandemic era moves. But I, I just also think that that's a major trend that is not going away anytime soon. Thank you. Farad, you talked about big cities being more challenged. And we just heard about Southeast from the mayor and also from Heather being relatively good shape. Is there a California problem that's more severe because of Silicon Valley that we can see in the numbers yet? Or is this a potential problem to come? Mm, that's a good question. We did not see any, any specific trend for Silicon Valley or California in general. That could be a problem in next year's analysis, of course. Longer term. Okay, thank you very much. Can I follow up with a no, little Bill. jump ball question? Heather brought it up and Mayor Franklin brought it up indirectly and it affects New York, which is mass transportation, public transportation and cities. All of the big city transportation systems are living on federal COVID aid and fumes and suffering from work from home-itis at least some days a week. Some of these are outside the city's control. They're state authorities, independent authorities. It's different in every place, but they are the lifeblood of many cities. And how are we going to dig out of this hole? Because it's not just the New York MTA or, or or SEPTA in Philadelphia. Atlanta needs transportation to get out from under terrible traffic. New York needs mass transportation to live. What kind of creative solutions are there? And how will this not affect tax rates? Bill, that's a great question. At some point, it will affect tax rates. I can just tell you on my personal experience here in Chicago, T 
TIFs is a huge deal and the CTA actually is in, embarking on a new C- TIF basically for, you know, funding, extending the red line here in Chicago. But the other thing that the sentiment I received from governments is that they are basically counting on BIL, bipartisan infrastructure law. That's a huge deal for governments, especially now, given the huge problem with, you know, work from home changed our, you know, big cities, basically. Going back to your point, transportation is a huge deal. And I expect that, you know, many governments will rely on that because let's just face it, at this point, they do, majority of cities do not have reserves to basically, you know, spend on infrastructure in general and transportation and, you know, their grid lines, basically, in their cities. Greg, you sound like you want to jump in. I I see you smiling. I think that what's going to happen in New York is that Governor Hochul is going to take a suggestion that Dick Ravitch gave her some time ago, and she's going to appoint a blue ribbon panel very shortly to deal with the MTA financial crisis. Ridership on the MTA and the commuter railroads is back to about 80%. It is growing. I drive to White Plains and my parking lot is also 80% of what it was pre-pandemic peak. I don't know if we're gonna get the other 20%. Jano Lieber, who now heads the MTA at every opportunity, and he just went to this major post-election conference we have in Puerto Rico, saying we need other revenue sources. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. We're trying to get congestion pricing through would represent a billion dollars, but it's not supposed to be for operating expenses. It's supposed to be for capital expenses. So I think that what we're going to get in New York is that Hochul's going to convene a panel and say, come up with a solution for us. We have a year to two years before the federal money runs out, and we'll see what happens. How about Atlanta and Chicago? Obviously, we have transportation issues and very little transit. And the region does not fund transit, nor does the state. So the transit funding is either federal funding or a sales tax in three of the seven or eight counties. The demand is greater than it's ever been. And the three counties passed an additional sales tax recently that could be impacted by a recession. But when they looked at their priority projects, it turns out that there are 15 priority projects just in those three counties, and they have funding for less than half of the projects, even with the new tax. So the crisis does exist around building, maintaining transit, and actually expanding the passenger base. So everybody's going to sit in traffic. Everybody sits in traffic in Atlanta and you plan your time where you shop, where you work, who you visit around traffic patterns. I think this is a really fascinating question. I mean, like, you know, COVID is kind of like the kryptonite of public transportation for obvious reasons. And I think Greg's uh, parking lot statistics are actually like really on point because Fitch came out with an estimate recently that public transportation systems, they're likely to permanently lose between 10 and and 30% of their ridership. So they will only potentially ever get back to 70 to 90% of pre-pandemic levels, which is a a really, really significant development. And particularly for cities where fare makes up the, you know, the fares that you pay at this turnstile make up a big percentage of the the revenue funds the public transportation. That, that's not how all cities structure it. But 
it is a common way, and that's going to be a real a real issue for mayors in cities with with the major existing public transit systems to figure out. So, Bill, I would just add that part of the challenge in Atlanta is the system doesn't go where people need to go because the region has grown so much faster than leadership, all leadership expected. And now we find ourselves with a small system and a big region. So part of the reason we have uh, ridership challenges is that the system just doesn't go where it needs to go. Do you see the infrastructure bill or the Inflation Reduction Act helping in this regard? It's fascinating that you ask. Money is only part of our problem. Political will, that sounds familiar. And also because we have had state leadership for 20 years that doesn't support transit, that believes that riding your car or your truck is the best way to get someplace. I finally follow up on this $90 billion of infrastructure bonds were approved. Infrastructure spending was approved in the recent elections. But much of that was in Southwest Texas, et cetera, where the infrastructure needs sounds like are very great in Atlanta and New York, Chicago. What do you see in the recent passing of infrastructure plans to solve any of these problems or to simply bring perhaps more focus on the growing areas and more challenges remaining for the Northeast and the Southeast where funding isn't available for infrastructure? It's a big question. Let's start with you, Greg. Well, the infrastructure bill is going to be of great benefit to New York, although it's actually so far hard to figure out. I've been doing an infrastructure session in my Ravage programs where I bring journalists from around the country, and I can give them the broad picture, but it's very hard for any of them to drill down. For example, in New York, we just know what Schumer says is coming, but we have a state level appointed the infrastructures are that we need. But there is- Stop stop here for a sec, Greg. What is coming? What does Schumer say is coming for those, for our audience? We're going to get $20 billion or something. We're we're going to get more than $10 billion in the infrastructure bill. We're going to be able to move on the Second Avenue subway up to 125th Street. How we're going to allocate all those projects, money is unclear, but we are going to get this infusion of money. Of course, in New York, the second question is the MTA is regarded as a very poor builder of infrastructure. We are about to open the El D'Amato <laughs> access for the Long Island Railroad to Penn Station, which is like four times the cost when it was proposed 20 years ago and 10 years late. But it is going to be this great development for people who live on Long Island and work on the east side of Manhattan. In so, X number of years, how many years? Well, we're opening it in December. Now, oh, right, right. after but 20, after 30 after 20 years. years. 20 more than like 20 years. This is Al D'Amato's gift. When Al D'Amato was senator, he was essentially the senator from Long Island, not from New York. And he pushed this project through. And now it's finally happening. But I think, Susan, a lot of the bond issues correct me if I'm wrong, Heather, a lot of the bond referendums that were passed were for school bonds, especially in Texas, fast-growing areas. That is infrastructure. New York passed an environmental bond, first bond of its sort in many years. So we're seeing some of that. But you're not seeing like a huge new transit system bond or, you know, it's, it's the usual mix of roads and roads and bridges 
but schools are very important. And in Texas, schools have backup from the state. So uh, the, the state acts as a big bond insurer. It's kind of a slam dunk for school growing school districts to take out debt. And, you know, a challenge like a, a metropolitan area like Atlanta that has grown out, the transit only covers three of the seven or 10 counties, depending on how you count. And one of those counties is almost a million people that's excluded. So, and another is 750,000 people. It really is going to take, in my opinion, some state leadership along with federal funds to begin to expand the system. If I could step back and take the big picture. So we have federal funds that are coming and Bill just referenced that a lot of it is going to go to education, very much needed. We've talked about transit that and roads, public transit, et cetera, that's needed. Is this one-time infusion of funds that's coming, is it going to solve what percentage of our problems in terms of long-term capital needs for cities? Shirley, can we perhaps start from you on this? Well, I mean, the city of Atlanta without federal funds and without state funds during my term, eight years spent $7 billion that we raised and raised fees and in order to pay. And that was airport and water and sewer and some parks funds, no transit funds. The region has passed this transit tax, which will bring in somewhere between seven and $8 billion for a system that needs twice as much and needs to expand three times its size. So I testified when I was mayor in the 2000s, early 2000s, for the infrastructure bill. It passed. <laughs> almost 15 years after my testimony. Hmm. So by the time it passed, we were already behind the eight ball. And Mayor Bloomberg testified the same day I did and several others. So we've known in cities that we need infrastructure. So if I could just close with this, when I was the water and sewer mayor, I called myself the sewer mayor, other elected officials and CEOs and leadership of the city asked me when I was going to stop talking about water and sewer infrastructure because I talked about it so much and we did a lot of work. The fact of the matter is that is actually the wrong question. The question is not do we stop talking about it, but when are we going to build infrastructure funding into our financial model for a healthy economy? And they didn't want to hear that answer. You've got some progress. Again, this is a political will question. In the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a lot of people deride, but if you dig into it, there is a whole new method of financing, tax credit financing, which has been done on a limited scale. There are opportunities for private investment in all kinds of resiliency and clean energy areas. People in Houston are very excited about this, but it's very confusing. Bloomberg Philanthropies recently set up the Bloomberg Infrastructure Hub to help state and local governments navigate this incredibly complicated web of bills and programs within the bills. Greg is right. It's very difficult to figure this out because there are so many different agencies involved in successive legislation. It's not just the CARES Act, but the, the American Recovery Plan, the and then the Infrastructure Bill, and the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. So this is going to be a very difficult time just to parse all that 
spec these projects out, get the investment. Some is going to come from private, some is not. People also forget that 80% of U.S. infrastructure investment, public infrastructure investment, comes from state and local, not from federal money. So this is political will is a big deal here. I think the tone of this conversation has turned to negative. The infrastructure bill is the biggest federal investment in infrastructure since the 50s, and it contains enormous amounts of money. I was just perusing the Schumer press release on New York. There's about $12 billion in highway funding coming. We're getting a billion dollars for airport funding where we've been spending enormous amounts of money. Amtrak, which needs to be saved, is getting done. The infrastructure bill gives us the money to do this crucial tunnel under New Jersey to extend the Second Avenue subway. And also the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, it's very important to remember it is a huge down payment on the climate crisis. There was a really good Paul Krugman column this week that points out that we have taken a major step away from penalizing polluters to incentivizing changes that will improve the economy. And the estimate he quotes in that is that we're getting about 80% of the climate benefits that we would have gotten had the Build Back Better proposal passed. So there is a lot of money. I'm not saying they're not, it may not be everything we could get, but these are huge investments. Indeed, when we thought the Republicans were going to sweep the elections, everybody was wringing their hands that Biden hadn't been able to make a good case and the Democrats about all they've accomplished. But for that being one of many reasons why the Democrats did better. So I just think there is a lot of money coming. It's over 10 years. It's not tomorrow. And it will be a subject of continuing coverage and I'm sure continuing discussions on this program. Heather, what is your view on this? Is the glass half empty or half full? I would go back to the idea that we really, that it's, too soon to say. I think it just takes a while for the impact of stuff like work from home, stuff like the dramatic shift you've seen in the economy from last year to this year. I mean, all of that stuff, you know, like income taxes, which are going to reflect that economic change, will take that process of from when the Fed says we're going to fight inflation to when, you know, New York City says this is how much we're collecting. There's time there. Property taxes from when such and such company decides we're going to end our lease in the central business district and to the time when that building gets reassessed, to the time when that building pays its property taxes, to the time when that property tax dollar or half of that dollar or whatever reduced amount of that dollar ends up in the budget. Like that's all time. And I just think that we're going to be trying to figure out exactly what the impact here is. And a big question, I mean, a big question is what is next year going to look like in the economy? Is there going to be a recession? Is there not going to be a recession? Because that has so much impact on budgets in so many cities and things could look really different depending on how that pans out. So there's a great deal of short-term uncertainty on the recession particularly and long-term uncertainty. We talked a bit about the infrastructure funding coming in. That's not uncertain, but how to use it in a changing economy long term. And you have just referred to, and we have a question on this, work from home. How is that going to play out? Of course, we really don't know, but we can 
take views on it right now from, again, your perspectives from your different cities. And let's start with you, Greg. Work from home, is that going to be transformative for New York? Is it going to empty out Manhattan? I guess you'd say no. I would guess I would say no. You know, it was just announced this week that Related is going to put up another office tower at Hudson Yards. So at least the people with money are betting that it won't look. But, but hold on. I don't want to. I don't want to. Jonathan Rose saying no to the Hudson Yards. Or do you think that's a misquote? So, but that's not Hudson Yards. That's no, that's, that's right. right, right. And for the record, they haven't said no. They said they wouldn't talk about it. Right. But remember, that's a 10 year project, too. So I wouldn't be surprised if they'd wait. Look, I don't want to be Pollyanna and I don't want to be in the group that says New York survived 9-11. We can survive anything, which we've heard a lot of during the pandemic. I don't want to be in that group. But let's be clear, the people who said New York was dead after 9-11, that everybody would move to smaller, safer cities could not have been more wrong because we had the greatest boom in New York City's history over the next 20 years. And right um, now, people are coming back in New York to their office. And people are coming back. And various JP Morgan stats requiring people to come back. So we're at 50% in the region, and we're probably at 60 to 70% in Class A office buildings on average. But nobody's here on Friday. They're here Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I used to come in every day. I don't come in on Friday anymore, though I do come in four days a week. We don't know what's going to happen next. Now, look, we're going to find out, I think, in the world of tech, for all the craziness, Elon Musk ordered everybody back to the office. Google's been back three days a week since April. With tech layoffs, they have a lot of clout. And I know in the media in New York, the New York Times is pushing hard for people to be back. The Wall Street Journal is pushing hard for people to be back. I had a former student to quit the journal because she wouldn't move back to New York from Seattle. They said, sayonara, good luck. We are going to have this job in New York. So the pressures are mounting. Now, we didn't get the fall bump that everybody wanted, so we'll have to see what happens in January. But the, of course, it's not like the current thinking, which I think is probably right, but I am not certain, is that people want really good office space because that's what gets workers back. So that's why we're forging ahead with three, two to $3 billion office buildings that are, one's opening soon. There's a new one that's going to take over. It's going to redo the former Trump Hotel at Grand Central. There's now this new tower going up at Hudson Yards. So the money's forging ahead. We probably have to do something with the B and C buildings that nobody wants. We have very tough climate rules for them, and they probably cannot be retrofitted to meet them. We'll have a report from what's called the New New York panel at the end of the year to chart how to do something about that. I think that anyone who's making predictions about what will happen is simply blowing smoke. We do not know, and there are many conflicting trends out there in the course of what's happening. And I'm saying my best guess is we'll be smaller, but not as small as today in terms of the business districts. But I want to tell you, I don't want that quoted back to me because I really don't know. But we do know what's happening right now. And what's happening right now is in New York, just as you said, 60% occupancy. Heather, what's happening in Chicago? Well, I'm in the office right now, as Greg said. We're back, the journal's back in the office three days a week. But 
I also think it's too soon to say. I mean, you saw Mayor Lightfoot this year opt against raising property taxes. You know, there was a lot of discussion about whether she would do that. And she ultimately decided not to, which I think can be viewed as also as a kind of wait and see verdict. You know, it's not that the impact hasn't been so bad so far that people need to pay higher rates. And we are anecdotally, we just started coming back three days a week this month. So I really think that all of this is still in flux and we'll have to see where things land as far as weekday downtown occupancy. Thank well, you. Shirley, so you know, you're in a fast growth city, in a fast growth area. Atlanta, for some reason, doesn't show up in the, the National Castle Index. What are you seeing? It's, you know, you've got a very spread out city in addition to downtown. Are, are people back to work or... Similar to what's been described, that kind of the middle middle of the week showing up and traffic every day. So um, traffic is heavy from 6 a.m. till 7 p.m. every single day. But people are moving around the city. The other thing I'd say is that our hotel industry and hospitality industry is recovering. So our conventions and our trade are recovering. Greg's comment, we are seeing new building. I mean, there's new building in every neighborhood, in every area, close into the city and just outside of the city. So people are still building office space. And so I think I couldn't agree with more that we really don't know. And people are forging ahead with a certain level of optimism, even though most people are back at work, but not all. So thank you, Mayor. On the optimism, half full, half empty, broader picture, are we ruling out a doom loop to come back to that? As some economists have said, could happen with the evaporation of office work to only two and a half days a week, which is the prediction that will be on average for hybrid workers and for all workers where we are quadrupling the days away from the office from 5% to 20%. But on the other side, we heard from Farhad earlier that cities are remarkably keeping their expenditures in line with their declining revenues. Has there been a shift? And this is really for you, Bill. Has there been a shift so cities, municipalities are more responsible so that in some ways that will help avoid any kind of doom loop, which... Now, Heather, you almost kind of referred to it. Of, do we need to raise taxes? And of course, if you raise taxes and people with more competition might be more likely to exit. Is there more control on spending? So this will help prevent any future major budget crises. What do you think about that, Bill? I think in general, that's true. There are some longer term problems, infrastructure, pensions, especially in older, older cities. So cities are generally pretty conservative in their finances. There's been one bankruptcy this year of Chester, Pennsylvania, outside of Philly, but that's a long term. It's a city that's been distressed for a long time, and the state kind of finally gave up on it. So, yeah, probably. And I was going to ask, because we only have about a minute left, just a quick lightning round of our three panelists who are on the line right now. What's your greatest concern at this moment? My greatest concern is that the... Uh, Worst case scenario will come true. The labor settlements will be bad. 
Wall Street will be down for an extended period of time. And will we have the political will in the last two years of the Adams administration to meet the test? Indeed. Mayor Franklin? My biggest concern is whether, in fact, this shift politically in the city and the state will cause us not to cooperate in order to get some of the bigger issues accomplished. And Heather? Uh, I don't get to have opinions. But (laughs) I will add something to this discussion about downtown real estate, which is that in my pension coverage, I have seen and, and written about that pension funds are pulling away from investment in in some types of office buildings, especially those kinds of like B and C type, older, less energy efficient office buildings that Greg was mentioning. So that is an opinion. It's not mine, but that's an opinion on the future of of downtown office. Challenges to come. And we haven't even talked about housing affordability, but how neat it would be if we could figure out transitioning those BNC buildings for housing. Indeed, and and we're at the top of the hour, so we're going to come back to all these subjects in the coming months. And as much as I, I hate to do it, this brings another special briefing to a close. Thank you so much to our panelists and to Susan Walker. There's contact information for all our panelists, and I'm sure they'd love to hear from you. Thanks to uh, Farhad O'Meara, Mayor Franklin, Greg David, and Heather Gillers. Thanks also to the folks behind the scenes, Graham Dowd, Kate Nicoletti, Andrew Mikhail, Diana Lynn, Arden Jordan, and Amy Montgomery. Thanks, of course, to the Volcker Alliance, members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors, and Century Foundation for your support. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.